Welcome to the Kanoi Church Podcast. We're glad that you're interested in connecting through this teaching time. If you'd like to connect further, feel free to reach out to us through our website, kanoichurch.org. For now, enjoy this teaching from Kanoi Church, where our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 5 really kind of in, in my opinion, we launch into what really now is the adventure. You know, Pastor Nick has used Indiana Jones as kind of the metaphor of Mark 5 and um, the adventures and so on. And up to this point, it's been pretty mild. I mean, like, you know, Jesus is teaching in parables and he's instructing. And um, we wrapped up in chapter 4 last week with the storm. Remember, um, they... Jesus says to the disciples, let's get in the boat and go across to the lake to the other side. His, his idea, remember that, that's going to be important. It was his idea, his suggestion, to get in the boat and go across. They come in in the storm. They're all afraid. They wake Jesus up. He's sleeping, and he calms the storm, and he chastises them a little bit about their lack of faith. So we pick up in Mark chapter 5 now um, where we're landing on the shore on the other side. And it all starts to get real here. We're through parables. We're through all the easy stuff. Now it starts to get real. So Mark chapter 5, I, I broke it down into two scenes almost, like if you think of a, a play or, or a drama. So scene 1 is where we're at today. And we're going to start reading scene 1, Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. They went across the lake to the region of Gesserines. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart, broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus was saying to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. And we're going to pause there. So, as we unpack this scripture, um, there's just some things we need to understand about the interaction of what's going on right now. So, this man from the tombs, so, in the Jewish culture, Jewish faith, tombs were an unclean area. Like, they were not allowed to be in that place. They weren't allowed to touch those bodies um, or, or anything. I mean, like, that was just off limits. This space that we landed on shore is the community of a Gentile city, not a Jewish city. So, again, we, we, there's some things here to understand as we... Uh, kind of step into this scene. 
Some questions immediately pop up into my mind. So how did Jesus, how did, how did this guy with the demons know that Jesus was coming? Because he met Jesus on the shore. So even if these tombs were not too far off from the shore, this man had to intentionally leave that space which was guarded, by the way. There was a guard posted to keep that man in because he was perceived to be dangerous, demon-possessed, etc. And this man met Jesus at the shore. So there's something weird happening already when this, this interaction starts to take place. I think... I think it gives us a little bit of insight to the intel, if you will, of Satan and his demonic forces. We are beginning, I believe, in this Mark chapter 5, we're beginning to step into now a beyond the physical. We're now stepping into understanding and seeing what happens in the spiritual realm. And this is a realm that, quite honestly, we often shy away from. We're going to take it head on this morning. So, how do we apply this right now, where we're at? We should not be surprised to face opposition to following God. Rather, we should expect it. Satan doesn't want us to follow the Lord. He doesn't want us to spread the word. He doesn't want us to get others involved. He doesn't want us to do anything that begins to further the kingdom. So then, if we are stepping out of the boat, so to speak, why would we be surprised when we meet um, confrontation or we meet up with evil or we meet up with um, issues that way? So this demon-possessed man had uncanny strength. So the scripture tells us they tried to chain him. He'd break the chains. Um, they'd try to, um, all kinds of different methods of containing him to the tombs because he, he really put fear into the Gentiles around the area because of his, his action and his acts. Um, a few weeks ago, I had shared, you know, my timeline of some steps through our life and highlights of that, and I had shared with you my, my time and career as a paramedic, and I, this made me think back of a number of instances where, uh, for whatever reason, could have been drug-induced, it could have been otherwise, but that it would take us six guys my size or better to hold one person down who was violent. And, you know, when you're in the throes of that, we, we think of drugs, we think of other things, but we don't necessarily think of demonic influence in that moment. But this made me think about those experiences and what, what if that was part of what we were dealing with. Okay. So, 
One thing that we want to take note here is we cannot hope to even win the spiritual warfare against Satan and his demons under our own power. We will not have any success if we try to take that under our own power. However, what we are going to see here is the fact that they don't hold a candle to Jesus. And we have Christ. I wore my shirt, right? I put on Christ this morning. So they don't, Satan and his demonic influence do not have power over us if we have Christ. Okay, let's, that sets it up. Let's read Mark chapters, chapter 5, 9 through 20 now. So remember, Jesus just said to the evil spirit to come out of this man. And then verse 9, then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. So get that picture in your mind. So this man, now the demon is talking to Jesus. We are many. In in the definition of legion in this time is thousands. Okay, so a legion of soldiers, so to speak, would be thousands of soldiers ready for battle or whatever. So that's what the term legion means in this time. And the demon is aware that he has to submit to the power of Jesus. So he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. Verse 11, a large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 of the, them, the pigs, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off, reported this in the town and countryside, meaning the, the Gentile people. They went out to see what was going on. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed, demon-possessed, begged to go with him, but Jesus did not let him. But Jesus said to him, go home to your family, tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in Decapolis what Jesus had done for him, and that all the people were amazed. So let's, let's pause here for a moment and imagine, if you were a disciple right now, what you're experiencing. This demon-possessed man had existed in this region for an extended period of time, just um, put the spirit of fear into the community. 
They hire security to keep him bound. They tried all kinds of things to keep him there. Um, and I think Jesus knew he would be confronting Legion when he arrived at the shore. I wonder if we can even make a case that this was the intended purpose when Jesus said to the disciples, come with me, get into the boat, let's go to the other side. He didn't say, come with me, I have a surprise for you. He just said, come with me. I don't know what your perspective of Satan's power and demon possession is, um, and, and I will admit my perception of that has gone all over the map over the course of my lifetime. Um, and I think it's unfortunate for us in our, our culture currently that when I think of demon possession, and I think probably many of you, we think of something that we have seen by Hollywood as in a movie or a TV show or something of that nature, um, you know, Chucky's head spinning around or, or whatever the case may be, that that image goes into our mind when we think of demon possession. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to try to dismiss that image from your, your brain, at least for, for our time together here this morning. In this incident, it appears the community may not have even recognized that he was possessed. Maybe they said he was insane. Maybe they said other, you know, thought other things that were wrong with him. They had tried chaining him, jailing him, guarding him without a great deal of success up to that point. And they lived in fear. So, you know, I... I I shared briefly, you know, some experiences I had as a, as a paramedic, and it makes me think about some of those experiences was, were we experiencing some of this in that um, incident? So, do these circumstances sound familiar to you? Let me unpack this a little bit. Right now in our country, we have an overflowing prison system with little rehabilitation success. We have a nationwide health crisis facing us, mental health crisis facing us without solutions. There have been more mass shootings this year than we have days so far. And there is an ever-expanding culture war against the teachings of Jesus. Are we not experiencing the same evil without God? We can... We can call it demon possession, we can call it anything else, but it's the absence of God, okay? So are we not already experiencing what perhaps Jesus unpacked for the disciples in Mark chapter five? Maybe this isn't so hard to believe when we make it real to us here. Maybe the church and we as professionals, humans, Healthcare, every, everybody, maybe we fail to recognize demonic influence. Maybe we've labeled it something else. Now, 
I want to give you a very strong disclaimer here before anybody leaves this place or if you're online watching that you end the service because you think I'm saying something that I'm not. I am not in any way suggesting that mental illness is demonic or sat satanic. I am not, so hear that loud and clear. I am asking, however, if in some cases we have misdiagnosed cause. If we recognize demonic power, we also need to recognize Jesus' power. Because if you recognize evil, you've got to recognize God, right? Because they, they both exist. If you acknowledge one, the other one has to exist. Even the, the demons in this story, legion, immediately recognize Jesus as the Son of God. There is no, no doubt, no question, no debate. So that is where the conflict lies, I believe. If we can not identify Satan as Satan, he wins because then there's no need to recognize Jesus, right? Several, oh, 20 plus years ago, um, I had the opportunity to sit down with another adult my age at the time who was asking really good questions about um, getting to know Jesus, um, you know, spiritual questions. So I, we scheduled a time to meet, and I sat down with her. And, you know, I, again, to explain salvation, you've got to start with sin, right? I mean, like, we've got to acknowledge, like, hey, I, I messed up. I don't, I don't measure up without Jesus. We couldn't get past that point because she's like, I don't sin. And it's like, okay, I know you, and I know you've sinned. Like, well, no, I've made mistakes, but that's not sin. So there was a lack of acknowledging the fact that there is sin, there is evil, there is Satan, and therefore she could not bridge that gap to talk with me about Jesus. And I left that conversation extremely empty because it went nowhere. But it, it didn't go anywhere because we couldn't get to acknowledge sin. Let me give you another example. How many of you, and you'll have to be my age or older to probably remember this, how many of you remember the bumper stickers, the phrases, the, the buttons that said, the devil made me do it? So, growing up in the church, I remember that phrase really well, and I remember, and I can only give you my experience, but my parents telling me, um, we don't say that, we don't give Satan credit, right, for our bad behavior. So in my, my thinking, my memory, and in, in this whole topic, that's kind of when the pendulum sw started swinging the other way, right? So. In humanity, our pendulum seems to go like this, right? I mean, we go from one extreme to the other extreme, and we can't kind of settle somewhere out of the extreme. So 
it seems to me like the evangelical church at that point began to swing the pendulum the other way to almost not recognize Satan and his power and his influence because we don't want to say the devil made me do it. We don't want to give him credit for that. I th again, this is opinion, so please, please hear it as opinion. But I think Satan has used that. I think he's used that to gain some more ground in how he influences our behavior as humans. And, and all I'm suggesting is that we think about the cause of the diagnosis. I, I shared my timeline you know, of several weeks ago now, but if you remember, I, I mentioned several surgeries in that timeline. So I'd, I had had a very major back surgery in 2016 and 2018, I started having this issue with my right foot always felt like it was swelling. Like, I mean, I couldn't get my shoe off fast enough because I could feel like it was thumping, like it was, it was my, gonna break my shoe, it was so tight. And I'd flip my shoe off and my foot was normal. There was no swelling. It was all a feeling. And so, I, you know, I went to my family doctor. Um, he tried some medication that didn't work. We tried, you know, some therapy that didn't work. We went to a foot doctor who couldn't tell me what was going on. Um, and I think there was some, a couple other steps in there until, and it just kept getting worse. I mean, like, it was, it was painful and it was driving me crazy because I thought I was going crazy, you know, because it's not swollen. I mean, like, I, I would swear, like, it's got to be twice the size and it's not. To figure out, when they sent me back to the neurosurgeon who had done my back surgery, and he did some very specific tests to, uh, to figure out that the screws that they had put in when they fused my spine were backing out. So, for a period of time, I could honestly say I had a few loose screws. <laughs> that required another major surgery, more major than the one that put the screws in, to repair all that. My point in all this, until we figured out the cause, we could not relieve the symptoms. Just think about that in a spiritual sense. So, I'm a skeptic by nature, and I think you, you probably know that by now of me. Um, and so, you know, over the years, I'm kind of skeptical of this whole topic. But I want to share a story with you that kind of aligns with Mark 5. And this um, story for scene one, um, this is a friend of mine who I've known for decades who I trust, who I know is very much in tune with the Lord. And um, anyway, they serve as chaplains with the, uh, the Billy Graham emergency response team. So they were in Little Rock, Arkansas in April. 
after the tornadoes had devastated the area, and they were there with the Billy Graham uh, emergency response team. And so this is a story that she had shared with me. So when I was doing this, um, preparing this message, this story occurred to me, and I reached out to her. I said, would you put this story in writing to me? Because I don't want to mess it up. And it's your story, but, like, it just really fits. So here's the story. This is April this year. Um, it was Friday night of their last week to be there. Um, Marcos Witt, uh, and that's not somebody I know, but she said he's the Hispanic Michael W. Smith. So, like, in the Hispanic culture, he would be the equivalent of a Michael W. Smith, held a concert of praise and encouragement for the community. They had set up their mobile ministry center with a table of literature and staffed it with two chaplains during the concert. And the rest of the team was inside preparing to minister to the people at the conclusion of the concert. Our staff, our outside staff, one male, one female chaplain, were approached by a young woman on a bicycle. At first, she was very smiley, chatty with the female chaplain. But as the conversation went on, her demeanor and voice began to change, to get deeper and odd-sounding. At one point, she looked straight at the chaplain and said, you know they call me the Antichrist. And she began to talk about rituals, strange things that went on around her, the male chaplain sent someone in to get the team's uh, chaplain coordinator, who is also female, who has had some experience with these interactions in the past. So the two chaplains were, that met up with her were not prepared for this interaction, but they knew the coordinator at least had some knowledge about this kind of thing. So the female chaplain didn't know what to do, so she called up the male chaplain and suggested they all pray. So the woman in question here agreed and joined hands with the chaplains as they began to pray. As the chaplain prayed, the woman began to shake slightly. As the prayer progressed, she shook more violently and started to moan. As the chaplain said amen, the chaplain coordinator, who had some experience, came out of the concert and approached the group. As she drew near, the woman became flustered and began urgently saying she had to go. In her haste to leave, she dropped the Steps to Peace brochure that the chaplain had handed her. The chaplain coordinator, who has had some experience this way, had picked it up and handed it to her. And, and against her protest, the chaplain is handing her this brochure, and she's just taking it like this, barely, barely to hold on. She sped away on her bike, muttering and grunting, and I believe left this brochure go to the wind. So that was, that was the experience that this team had in that moment. As they processed this and they prayed, they believed that the Holy Spirit revealed to them that this woman was indeed under demonic influence. Okay, we can say demon-possessed, we can say demonic influence. If I say demonic influence today, maybe it doesn't make us think of Chucky in Hollywood, but makes us think more of what we're discussing. 
And when they believe that when the coordinator emerged who had some of this experience in the past, that the, the, the demon recognized the power of Christ in her and knew that his time was ended in this conversation. The previous two chaplains were not equipped for that. The coordinator who had been some training in it came out, the demon recognized, let's get out of here, right? So this is real stuff. That was April. One other reference, and this is not scripture, but this is fiction, but it's based on biblical truth. Um, and I don't know if you've ever heard of Frank Peretti. He's an author, but he has written several books. Uh, this one, I think, being one of the more recent, um, Piercing the Darkness. It's a fictional story, but it is involving um, demonic and heavenly battles going on above us in the day-to-day routine and culture and news and so on. And I read this book probably a year ago, and I, as I read it, I felt like I was reading the newspaper of today. It was that real. And so, again, I'm not saying that scripturally what, what that author says, how it happens is how it happens. I'm just saying that's a man's um, version, but it, it aligns with the story that we unpacked here today of like what's going on. And in, in Ephesians, Paul talks about our conflict is not of this world. Our war, our battle is in the spiritual realm, but in our culture and in our belief system, we typically want to address myself included, address everything from this world, right? We don't think about that level on a daily basis. So, based on the scripture in front of us, it appears that Jesus purposely went to this side of the lake through a storm that created great fear for the disciples, and he calmed the storm. Then they got to the shore where the demon-possessed man immediately met Jesus, this man, legion, the demons, had created much fear in the community, and Jesus confronts him head-on. Jesus demonstrates that even these multiple demons do not have any power over him, and in fact, tremble at his presence. The headline should have read, thousands of demons are no match for Jesus, pigs plummet to their death in sea. That would be a headline to, to dig deeper into, wouldn't it? So if I'm a disciple on this journey, we went from Mark 4 where Jesus is teaching people through parables and a teaching atmosphere, kind of feel good, come with me. And then he says to his disciples, let's get in a boat. Let's go to the other side of the lake. The storm comes. Um, he quiets the storm. They meet up with a, uh, a demon-possessed man. He casts the demon, allows the demon to leave, 
and go into the pigs and 2,000 pigs run over the cliff into the sea and die. And now people are pissed off. That was their livelihood, right? I mean, you're talking Gentiles now. Jews wouldn't even, I mean, pigs were unclean, remember, to, to the Jewish culture. But now he's got a community that's really upset because he just lost 2,000 of their herds. There seems like nothing that Jesus can't do right now. And what did I sign up for? I mean, the teachings and the people and all that, the crowds, that was one thing. But, man, this is getting out of hand if I'm a disciple and I'm on this come-with-me, follow-me journey. I think, as <laughs> then that portion kind of wraps up in Jesus Seems like he takes a deep breath and goes, okay, guys, let's get in the boat. Let's go to the other side now. And I would be going like, are you kidding me, Jesus? Like, no way. I'm done. I'm out of here. I didn't sign up for this kind of shenanigans. And then that takes us to scene two of this chapter. I would be out of breath. I would, I would be, if Kyle and I were disciples, I would be, chewing Kyle's ear the whole way across the lake again. It's like, what did we, what, what's going on here? What did we sign up for? Like, what's Jesus doing? Um, what's going to happen to those people? I, I mean, and just like there'd be all these things going on in my mind that I would be chewing somebody's ear about. So then let's go to Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 30. So when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, fortunately no storm this time, a large crowd gathered around him. Why wouldn't they at this point, right? While he was by the lake, one of the synagogue leaders named Jarius came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. And a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And then a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, all her money, for care, and yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I could just touch his clothes, I would be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone from him and he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? So, have you ever been to a concert or amusement park, Hershey Park, anywhere that you are pressed up against people? Um, a number of years ago, it might have been like around 2005, I think my daughter graduated high school. Um, she was um, in the band and they got to play New Year's Eve uh, in Magic Kingdom in Florida. 
and we went as chaperones, and that was my first experience, New Year's Eve in Magic Kingdom, where I experienced movement without moving my feet because the, I, the crowd pressed in so hard when they moved, I just moved. And I'm sure like I was probably doing something like this, but I didn't take a step or do this because there was no room to move. So I, I kind of get that impression that this is kind of how the scene that we're reading about and Jesus going like, who touched me? And the disciples are going like, what do you mean? Like, how can you even determine who touched you in a crowd like this? So some things I want to unpack here in scene two. So we have two people that are the primary um, characters besides Jesus in this incident. We have Jarius, who is a highly visible member of the community. He is a synagogue leader. So in the Jewish community, he's up here, right? In fact, he was probably risking quite a bit by even going to Jesus. I mean, if you think about when all this was happening, he was taking a risk to even go after and seek Jesus out for, the, for healing of his daughter. And then we have this woman who for 12 years, so, so just think about this, Jarius is asking for healing for his daughter who is 12 years old. And then we have this anonymous woman. We don't even know her name in Scripture. But they, we have this anonymous woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. They are both seeking healing. Jarius was wealthy. He had everything money could buy. The woman lived in poverty. Jarius was a leader in the synagogue, and because of the woman's physical condition, even though she was Jewish, she was forbidden to even enter the synagogue. She was unclean. She could not even enter the synagogue. For 12 years, as the daughter grew, the house of Jarius was filled with laughter and joy. For the last 12 years, the house of this anonymous woman was filled with misery and despair. We have two very opposite ends of the spectrum that we're looking at. These two people in this story, culturally, economically, um, are so different, and yet they're both, it all boils down to seeking Jesus, right? So from both ends of the spectrum, Jesus is giving us a lesson and the disciples a lesson that both ends need him. Both are equally as important. Okay? I, I want us to, to remember that and think about that. And that goes both ways. So I have met, over the course of my lifetime, I have met Christians who would put more importance on those with money. I've also met those who would put more importance on those without who would believe that those with should know better. As if money makes us think different spiritually. It comes down to what we said in the beginning is knowing that we have sinned. 
right? There is no economics in that. So I just, it's just interesting to me as we unpack this scripture of the contrast that Jesus is showing us. So let me pause here. Do you feel like Jarius right now? Or is there a time in your life that you felt like Jarius? Life is pretty good. You suddenly get punched in the gut with some bad news. Could be economics, it could be job, it could be health. Maybe something in your family and that gut punch occurs. All that you have accomplished and the resources gained so far in life cannot change the gut punch or fix it. And you absolutely need Jesus to intervene. Perhaps you identify with the woman right now or you have in the past. When you feel like your life has been one problem after another and collectively has put you in a place of scarcity. You have no resources or solution and you absolutely need Jesus to intervene. Are you, have you sought out Jesus as Jarius did, aggressively with great urgency and pleading, and yet maybe you share the perspective of the woman where you're crawling out of desperation and reaching out one last time to the master, hoping to just touch his garment. Jesus gives a picture of both. And in this scripture, we'll, we'll find out he meets both, right? So there's a lot of lessons in here, economic status, social status, what people, friends think is, is of no matter to Jesus in this. Let's go to Mark five thirty one to 43, and we'll wrap up the chapter this way. You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet. And trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? It's too late. Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, Jarius, don't be afraid, just believe. This is after this woman just got healed, okay? So Jarius just had an object lesson happen in front of his face that he just witnessed, and now Jesus is looking at him and said, ignore them, believe. He did not let anyone... Follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jarius, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. And just as a sidebar in that culture, this was a sign of money and influence because you had professional mourners and wailers all there already. That was something I learned as I researched this. So in the Jewish culture, people who had money would actually have hired mourners come in and they would weep, wail. It was all part of the grieving process. So that had already started. 
So Jesus went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. They laughed at him. So we go from mourning, weeping, and wailing to laughter at Jesus. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha Koum, which I'm going to trust, is, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. And Jesus gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and then told them to give her something to eat. So as Jesus stopped in his tracks in this whole uh, scene, um, and he wants to know who touched him, the woman identifies herself because she knows she has already been healed. And he simply says to her to, that her faith has healed her. Go in peace. Meanwhile, Jarius is watching that. And remember who Jarius is. Remember who this woman was. I have to think, Jarius is going like this. Come on, Jesus, my daughter is dying. This woman, she doesn't matter. Do you know who I am? Like, come on, Jesus, come on. Probably telling the woman, get away, get away. Somebody move her. Like, using his influence, right, to get her out of the way. Why in the world would Jesus stop and take care of this woman in the process of going to take care of Jairus' daughter? One faith here is the woman had nothing left but faith, and she puts 100% of her physical and emotional efforts toward touching the hem of Jesus' garment. And Jesus tells her, your faith has healed you. The other faith is that of a desperate father who is seeking the help of Jesus and the healer for his daughter. His effort is in addition to everything else his community is carrying out in regards of customs and, and then um, their rituals and their belief system. He's willing to try anything at this point to save his daughter. And remember, Jarius was taking a significant risk even reaching out to Jesus in his status in the Jewish synagogue and community. So here's a couple interesting points I want to I want to take away. It's interesting to me that Jesus silences the mourners and then asks maybe not asks, maybe tells everyone to leave. Silence and you need to get out. This gives us a physical picture of the internal struggles that I think we all face at times. And to be truthful, I, I struggle with this. As I shared a few weeks ago, I spent 30 years in healthcare and saw lots of death. And I saw lots of life, too, where, hey, it worked. Or, I don't have any idea other than it had to be God. 
why that person's still alive. But our family has seen its share of unusual deaths, and yet Jesus calls me to faith. He calls each of you to faith. Maybe the first mountain we need to move is to pray against Hi, this is Pastor Nick. Thanks for listening. I hope something that you heard today was very helpful. If you want to connect with us further, feel free to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or our website, kanoichurch.org. Sure, I'm glad we're in this together. Thank you.